Hello and welcome to At Any Rate Podcast. I'm Meera Chandan, co-head of the FX Strategy Group. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Patrick Locke, from uh, the FX Strategy team in, uh, in New York. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about um, a very topical theme. Uh, it's, uh, it's about the debt ceiling. Uh, this issue has been closely watched by markets um, and has now been resolved with the bill having cleared both the House and the Senate. The process was much um, easier than originally anticipated and uh, with no major um, you know, fireworks for the market, at least. Uh, so the question is, what does this resolution mean for FX overall? You know, as we're thinking about the impact on the FX markets, there are three particular channels um, that we're considering. The first is the cyclical one, which is there's a certain fiscal tightening involved uh, as a part of this deal. Uh, what does that mean for the dollar? Uh, the second is the risk premium, meaning there were parts, uh, even though they were limited, parts of the FX market, where uh, you know where uh, the market had built in some sort of a premium or a discount in some currencies uh, in relation to um, a possibility of a technical default um, that has either been unwound or needs to be unwound. So the question is, what is the channel that um, that is uh, going to be in play from that point of view? And the final one is around liquidity because uh, we do have a situation where um, the treasury is going to be building up its PGA balances and that's going to have an impact on bank reserves. So um, let's start with the first two of those channels. That how are you thinking about uh, the cyclical impact from the fiscal tightening? And more broadly, is there any parts of the FX market where the premium around the possibility of technical default still needs to come out? Thanks, Mira. Yeah, so on the cyclical impact, it turns out we're not really expecting any material impact through to the dollar. Um, there was always a risk that there was going to be you know, substantial fiscal spending cuts imposed, similar to what happened in 2011 that would kind of more materially impact um, the future cyclical prospects for the U.S., in reality, that never really manifested. So in terms of the agreement, there's been kind of a slight, or there's been a cap on spending uh, for non-discretionary measures held flat. Um, and then basically um, defense spending is still measured to go up. So altogether, it nets out to about a two-tenths of a percent of GDP that's um, you know being taken out of fiscal spending plans. Translated into kind of a dollar model, that would suggest only about six tenths of a percent in terms of dollar twi, which in the big picture is really, really just noise um, and essentially not an issue. Um, and again, relative to 2011, this is a constructive outcome um, where fiscal spending was curtailed by a more material seven tenths of percent of GDP back then. So um, we think there really isn't much of a dollar dollar impact here. And if anything, you could even argue that the net kind of the, the final outcome was dollar positive in the sense that, you know, people had some market participants had been expecting uh, much more significant slashes uh, to spending. So realistically, from our side, we don't think this is kind of the main channel uh, to impact uh, the dollar. To your point about the risk premium, um, generally, we see scope to deprice some risk premium out of Swiss. Um, generally, it's less clear elsewhere, um, including in the broad, broader dollar twi. Bigger picture, it never really became much of a market issue uh, for macro markets, at least. Certainly in kind of more micro markets that were directly affected, things like, you know, the T-bill space. Um, obviously, there was a significant risk, uh, risk premium built into markets, but it was only ever slightly kind of, you know, manifesting in, into the FX space. Uh, we saw that most evidently with Swiss. Um, dollar Swiss had biggest correlation with uh, widening U.S. CDS over time. And also, if you kind of overlay Swiss richness, a couple measures of Swiss richness, 
um, against that same measure of CDS, there was also a reasonably high degree of correlation as, as well um, there. But, you know, translating that across the rest of the G10 complex, those correlations are actually quite light which suggests that really there was only ever any material risk premium baked in into the Swiss side and, and positioning there. Um, so in our view, that means basically that dollar Swiss could have maybe one to 2% left to deprice to the top side uh, before this gets cleaner. Um, whereas for the rest of G10 FX, we don't think there's a, that much. Um, it's interesting, of course, that, you know, something like yen or maybe even Euro didn't have that same kind of risk premium built in. But we, what we had originally argued was that Swiss really was the kind of the best vehicle uh, for expressing hedges against the debt ceiling, uh, due in part because of some local um, Japanese factors, as well as kind of the ongoing, um, you know, sell off in, in U.S. rates, ultimately um, being a much more overwhelming kind of negative drag on yen. Um, similarly, with euro, um, we never thought that was necessarily the best kind of safe haven um, destination, especially with kind of long positioning the way it was. So it makes sense to us that Swiss is really only kind of the, you know, the single channel um, through which risk premium really needs to come out of our space at this point. Okay, so um, the summary there is that um, Swiss is the only one which uh, potentially could cheapen as this gets depriced, uh, maybe one to 2%. And then um, as far as the fiscal tightening is concerned, not much impact on the dollar. So let's move to the third factor then, which is the potential liquidity impact. And I you know, do personally think that this is gonna be a bigger deal for markets. Um, so, you know, but before before we kind of get into the details of how this impacts the dollar, Patrick, can you just um, go through the mechanics of what's actually going on with TGA and bill issuance and why, uh, you know, what this could potentially mean for reserves uh, through year end? Sure. Um, yes, I agree that, that this is probably the most important channel for our space. Um, now, for those who are more interested in the minutia, uh, we'd suggest that you listen to a podcast on the same channel from our rates colleagues last week on Friday. Um, it goes into the mechanics of kind of the TGA rebuild in more detail. But just to summarize, um, you know, the Treasury had been running down its cash balances to help avert a technical default. And now that the debt ceiling has been raised, the, te the Treasury needs to replenish the TGA to get balances back to levels that are consistent with its cash management objectives, which is a TGA of around 600 to $650 billion, up from around $50 billion currently. This is relevant since the expectation is that rebuilding the TGA is typically considered a liquidity drain and should should end up reducing bank reserves um, bank reserves by a pretty significant amount. The numbers we're talking about are pretty big. Um, our rates colleagues think that there's going to be bill issuance of around $850 billion between now and the end of September. And then on top of that, QT continues by around $300 billion over the same period. Um, so other Fed liabilities, you know, either reserves or the reverse repo, um, will have to shrink by that amount. Um, now, there's a number of ways that this can be absorbed, um, like through the private sector or by money market mutual funds pivoting away from the reverse repo. But our rate strategists think that the bulk of the TGA rebuild uh, will be met with kind of an offsetting decline in reserves, which is consistent with historical norms. Um, the beta of that is normally 0 0.8, uh, so a pretty straightforward impact uh, from the TGA rebuild to reserve size. Um, and so this reduces liquidity in the system. It looks like we're on pace to experience potentially the second largest drawdown in reserves um, in the last couple of decades. Uh, and so with that, Mira, maybe I'll turn it over to you. How should we be thinking about changes in reserves 
mapping that over to the FX space. Um, are there any complications when thinking about these relationships? And are there any other liquidity factors that we should bear in mind uh, at the same time? Sure, Pat. So look, I mean, the, the important assumption here, and I think this is, I think, where we differentiate from, from consensus is that the bulk of this is actually going to um, translate into a reduction in reserves rather than RRP. Uh, and that's something that we're going to continue to monitor um, in the next few months. Uh, but assuming that, uh, you know, our assumption holds and 80% um, of that decline in liabilities comes from reserves, um, I think um, it's important to, you know, that that's going to be quite meaningful for the dollar. Now, quantifying the impact of reserves on the dollar isn't actually that straightforward. Uh, you can do a few simple charts that tells you that this is a great relationship, that the dollar is highly correlated. Uh, to um, the changes in reserves. Um, and actually some of these simple relationships tell you that about 700 billion or decline in reserves that we expect uh, could actually push the dollar higher by as much as 5% in trade weighted terms. That translates into eight to 10% bilateral type uh, currency moves for some pairs. And um, so it's not trivial. Now, um, and similarly, if you look back in time, so for example, the first half of 22 is a good example for this. The 1.1 trillion decline in reserves at that time coincided with an 8% strengthening in the dollar. So on paper, this has the potential to look pretty big, uh, but we think the magnitude here, I think it's important to adjust for other factors that we think the magnitude of moves in the dollar from this factor alone is gonna be smaller, more of the 2% variety in trade weighted terms. Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, the, the reason you can't just take previous instances like the first half 22, um, as a good template for what the dollar did, because that was also the time of the Russian invasion. We had a massive Fed repricing. So clearly that entire 8% strengthening that we had um, last year was not just about the fact that reserves fell, it was about these other macro factors around the invasion and the Fed repricing that was going on. So looking at simple relationships does tend to overstate these things. I think the 2% uh, sort of incremental impact from, from the uh, fallen reserves is probably a more reasonable um, estimate. And, you know, and it is reasonable to have now the dollar react to this because at the end of the day, dollar will be more scarce reserves fall on a relative basis compared to other currencies. But taking a step back, I, you know, I still do think the bigger factor here is going to be QT. And it's not just about the Fed, you know, in our year ahead outlook for the last six months, we've been saying that, um, uh, you know, it's not just the Fed doing QT. This is not what's differentiating the dollar from other currencies. It's really the fact that core DM central banks as a whole are, are shrinking their bank balance sheets. And that's not good for cyclical currencies or growth sensitive currencies. And that I think is more meaningful. Uh, you know, we have, we have sort of put that um, estimate, the impact from the QT, aggregate QT to be larger three to 4% in trade weighted terms for the dollar uh, in the second half. So that, you know, I still think is the bigger, bigger factor here. Thanks. So that adds up to, you know, perhaps five to 6% of that support for the dollar. Um, you know, is this in particular why you turned bullish on the dollar three weeks ago? Sure. Well, you know, you know, we've known about this balance sheet reduction for a long time, right? This was a key pillar of our year ahead outlook. Um, the quantitative tightening was a key pillar of our year ahead outlook uh, that we published in November last year. Um, so, so I don't think that the balance sheet reduction is a new dynamic. It was always expected to be part of sort of the long dollar theme um, for this year. The new bit here is um, the TGA rebuilding uh, dynamic, which was also known, well known. I mean, you know, assuming that the debt ceiling issue was resolved and a technical default was averted, but the uncertainty 
was really around when this would happen. And that's the timing uncertainty that has not been resolved. But I think, um, you know, in combination, the the QT plus um, the TGA rebuild should add up to a dollar supportive view. I think, you know, but this is not the only factor that drove our change in the dollar um, uh, a few weeks ago. The key determinant our change at that point in time was global growth momentum outside the US, particularly in China and Europe, running out of steam at the same time. This was an important factor, the high growth in these countries outside the US was an important factor that in one half, in the first half, kept the dollar pinned down, uh, despite this QT uh, channel growing in the background. But now that that counterweight has been lifted, the dollar is just freer to respond to these other pressures. And I think we're sort of going back into a more momentum thematic market, which is more supportive over time uh, for a, for a um, dollar bullish stance. This is very unlike the first half, which was, was very rangy uh, for, for FX markets, particularly for the dollar. So on the growth side, I would say, look, the jury's still out. I'm observing that our growth signals are still in neutral territory rather than sort of outright defensive or massively bullish dollar yet. But, um, but I do think that that neutralization and growth from the positive um, to neutral has occurred. And I just think that the dollar is going to be more open to these shifts. Now, if we do have a situation where China growth is picking up again or European growth is picking up again, I think that's something we have to keep an eye on. Uh, but uh, but certainly we've not seen much signs of that yet. So the view from here is still that the dollar should strengthen, particularly versus the lower yielding currencies that are growth sensitive, which are most at risk. Most of G10 commodity currencies are still in that bucket. And I'd say our EM Asia strategists are noting that a lot of the Asia um, uh, basket is in that um, bucket as well. So we'll stop um, there. Uh, in a nutshell, the conclusion here was um, that we are trending uh, a bunch of these factors and are moving and uh, pushing us into a bit more of a momentum-driven market, uh, which is more um, dollar bullish than, than what we saw in the first half. For more information on our research, take a look at jpmorganmarkets.com. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on June 5th, 2023.